author of his fifth book. Uh, this is called uh, Half American, and it's about African-American involvement in World War II, really preceding World War II. Uh, just a fascinating book. Uh, you know, and Matthew, I told you this a little before we started. Um, it, it's true what they have in the flap of the book. Uh, as you open it up, you're going to find out what is this book about? American history, as you've never read it before. Uh, that whole story, how long did it take you to, to, uh, to get all the information that, that you have in this book? So it took me about seven years to work on the book, all told. Oh, yeah. And of course, the story is, uh, you know, Black America, of course, already reeling from the racism in, in this country and, and on all fronts. But now we get into a war. And I don't know how much you want to get into the uh, civil war in, in Spain, because you, you, you make a point that that really is where things started uh, in, in the book, right? Exactly. I, mean, I think it is important for listeners to know that for Black Americans, World War II really does start before Pearl Harbor and before America officially enters the war militarily. Because when they see the rise of fascism in Europe, in Nazi Germany, Italy, and in Spain, uh, they're alarmed. If you look back at a Black newspaper, 1933-34, there are dozens of editorials and stories talking about how uh, Hitler and Nazi Germany pose a threat not just to, to Jews in Europe and not just to Europe as a continent, but really to the entire world. Um, there yeah. are headlines saying that the Second World War has started once Italy invades Ethiopia in 35 and once the Spanish Civil War starts in 36. Um, and so I think important for this story is that you have more than 80 Black Americans who volunteer to go fight in the Spanish Civil War. Uh, Langston Hughes, the famous poet, becomes a war correspondent and goes over there and covers them. And what's important to that for Black Americans is that those volunteers are fighting in integrated combat units at the same time they couldn't take on those same roles in the American military because the American military is segregated. And right. so it, it creates this vision of what might be possible if only the, um, the U.S. military could, could come to their senses, so to speak. And, you know, the book Half America, we're talking with Matthew Delmont, professor of history at Dartmouth College, and the book Half American talking about, well, let's take that title, Half American, because they... You know, once Pearl Harbor arrives, and obviously at that point, uh, you know, the, the, it's pretty clear that, you know, the, Europe is already in flames. Um, Japan has made this move. Uh, war is on. Everything is mobilized now. Although I, I was amazed, and this was just an aside in your book, the Reuben James uh, of, of destroyer, American destroyer, was torpedoed October on Halloween 1941, 100 dead. 100 dead, including, uh, I think you said, three black Americans on, on that uh, ship. And yet still, that, that you'd think that would be an act of war. But no, it, it took uh, December 7th of that year uh, before, of course, Pearl Harbor and, and uh, when we went on. And then we faced the problem of, uh, and I say we, the country faced the problem of, okay, everyone get down there and let's sign up. But wasn't that easy if you're a black American, right? Exactly, exactly. The uh, the title for the book, Half American, comes from a letter that a man named James Thompson wrote to the Pittsburgh Courier. James Thompson was a 26-year-old from Wichita, Kansas, and after Pearl Harbor in December of 1941, he writes this letter to the Courier, which is the largest and most influential Black newspaper of the time. And Thompson asks, should I sacrifice my life to live half American? Is the America I know worth defending? And what Thompson's asking pretty pointedly is, should he and other Black Americans be drafted into a military that's fully segregated? Should they fight for a country that's only going to treat them as second-class citizens? 
ultimately Thompson and more than a million other Black Americans go on to serve in the war. Um, but for me, that that phrase, should I sacrifice my life to a half American, it really stuck with me in, in the years I worked on this book, and that's why I chose it for the title, is that it, I think it really spoke profoundly to the the dilemma that Black Americans face, that they they were deeply patriotic, they wanted to fight and defend their country, but they didn't want to be demeaned in the service of their country. And that was the, the crux of what it meant to have this segregated military. Because after Pearl Harbor, you have hundreds of Black Americans who go volunteer for military service. And there are all these stories of Black Americans being turned away by military recruiters because the military doesn't yet have enough Black units to accommodate them. And these volunteers are just left dumbfounded that how is on earth can my desire to, to protect and defend my country be be denied? Um, and that was just one of the, the many um, frustrating uh, incidents that, that Black Americans encountered during the war. And it seems on, on one level after another, first, the black Americans who volunteer can't get in for the reasons you stated. Then when they are and, and they had to work hard just to, you know, efforts were made and your book spells them out. Uh, meetings were held, uh, you know, come on, turn this around, change this thing. When they are, uh, you know, sort of allowed in, if, if one can put it in that way. Um, then they're demeaned and, and put in uh, subservial roles and and uh, just uh, there's just all kinds of uh, unfairness. Um, it just it just, you know, just boggles the mind. Um, one thing I want to tell you or ask you, uh, Matthew, the black press, uh, having worked on a newspaper myself for some 20 years, you know, it, it occurred to me as I read this, boy, what a great role they played. In, in bringing this to light, because a lot of the information that you got for your book came from the result of, of the black press. Black newspapers like the Pittsburgh Courier, Chicago Defender, New York Amsterdam News are a tremendous, tremendous historical resource. They were important because these black newspapers weren't just reporting on current events, they were actively shaping current events. The black press has always understood itself to be a fighting press. Uh, they make no false claims to objectivity or trying to play both sides of the issue. They've, they've always explicitly said that they're fighting on behalf of black Americans. But that meant during World War II, they were fighting against uh, racial discrimination in the military, racial discrimination in defense industries. And they were front and center uh, calling on uh, FDR, other um, politicians, military leaders to be accountable, um, to recognize that um, black soldiers were catching hell on these these army bases in the South to recognize that the country was being hypocritical in its treatment of, of black Americans during the war. And so for me as a historian, being able to look at those editorials and the reporting of the black press was, was a really important set of sources. And then once black troops do deploy, uh, a number of these black newspapers have war correspondents that follow these units into the war zones. And what's important there is that um, black Americans by and large were not in combat roles, that there are a number of units that played important roles um, in uh, in combat and in infantry infantry positions. But by and large, the majority of Black Americans were in supply and logistical roles, these really important but unglamorous behind the scenes jobs. But these Black war correspondents reported on it uh, weekly. They, they talked about, you can't understand this war if you don't understand what they called the miracle of supply, the way that Black uh, Americans made it possible to move all of these, these supplies all across the world. Being able to, to use those um, those primary sources, those those accounts from 1943, 44, 45, really gives us a different sense of, of what the war looked like. Um, that World War II wasn't just a battle of strategy and will, it was a battle of supply. And, and that gives us a, an entirely new sense of the really vital roles that Black Americans played in helping America and the Allies win the war. 
And then, you know, your book also spells out, talking um, with Matthew Delmont about his book, Half American, that the black press came under attack because it was taking the, the role that you just said, exploring what's going on, uh, you know, early in the war. We're talking about, you know, 1942 in that era where, you know, you didn't know. I mean, we're all, you know, looking back now. OK, United States wrapped it up. That that wasn't clear uh, back in 1942. There's all kinds of, uh, you know, emotions going on, fears. And the FBI uh, wanted to, what, close the Baltimore paper down? Exactly. Yeah, the, the FBI, other federal offices are, are actively investigating and surveilling uh, and then ultimately trying to close some of these black newspapers because they believe that any uh, critical coverage of the military effort, any reporting on segregation is being disloyal or it's potentially sedition. And so there's this tremendous series of back and forth correspondence and then in-person meetings between black editors and uh, federal officials in Washington, D.C. sort of talking about and trying to come to some sort of position of truce because the black editors are saying, you know, to serve our constituents, to serve our readers, we have to report honestly on what black soldiers are facing and report honestly on this discrimination. For their part, the FBI and and, uh, politicians are, are saying that any of this coverage can be used as propaganda and, and was being used as propaganda by, by Japan and Germany. And so it just gives us a, a tiny, tiny snapshot of this really fraught sense, set of um, uh, set of debates and, and tensions that existed during the war era. Let me ask you this, Matthew, and I know it is, it's difficult now because we're, we're many years removed from that era, the 40s, when the war was going on. But what about the and, and I hate to use the phrase white press because, you know, it, it should be for everybody. But, you know, the the the, the mainstream press, wh- where are they on this issue of, you know, whether it's and, and you haven't even got into riots and, and some of the other things that happened when people were denied jobs in defense plants. Uh, that's that's another chapter that uh, we have to deal with. But uh, where where was mainstream press on this thing? I think it's fair to call the mainstream press of that era essentially a white press. If you looked yeah. at major newspapers like the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, or even smaller regional newspapers, you really didn't see much coverage of, of Black communities or, or Black Americans, even if there were thousands and thousands of, of residents in those communities. Um, really, the only time you saw any coverage of, of Black people is if there was a crime committed or sometimes some sporting news. And so the kind of day-to-day reporting and coverage you see in, in black newspapers really isn't replicated in the white press. Something like the double victory campaign, which swept across black America is hardly reported on at all in the white press. And when it is reported on, it's actually reported on critically because uh, a lot of white Americans in the white press saw this as a sign that uh, black Americans weren't fully behind the war effort, that they were somehow being conditionally loyal, that they, they were asking for too much by asking for, for equality and democracy at home. Um, later in the war, there's some back and forth about, are the Tuskegee Airmen and other um, black troops who have finally get combat roles, are they doing a good job? Are they um, being successful in combat? And there you see some of the, the mainstream um, magazines like Time and Newsweek running articles that essentially repeat talking points of these um, white commanders who have racial prejudice against their own black troops and who are trying to undercut them in, in the press. And so if you were to look just at these mainstream white newspapers and magazines, you would a have a hard you'd have hardly any sense that black americans participated in the war effort at all and then b the times they do come up you would think that black americans were doing a horrible job in combat which um is factually untrue when you actually look at the the records that's you know that's the other thing because if we jump ahead to the end of the war or at least the the war um in europe 
James Eastland, the, the senator from Mississippi, uh, gets up in, in front of the Congress and said, Negro soldiers have disgraced the flag of the country and runs them down, um, saying he's talked to military commanders. Was this opposed? I mean, you know, here, here's a guy from a, you know, a segregated South. Was, was this accepted or, or did somebody refute this or how, how did this go over? The, the quote you're talking about, I think, is it's it's so disturbing to read today um, yeah. because James Eastland and his sort of ilk, his generation of white politicians and white citizens from the Jim Crow South made no bones at all about believing in white supremacy. He explicitly right. said on, on the floor of the Senate that he was proud that he had, I think what he called the, the purest form of white blood in, in his veins and that the white race was the, was the best race and that um, black Americans were inferior. It's almost hard to believe that a politician could publicly say that, but that was the um, that's essentially what he ran on. That was his, his political platform right. in some respects. <clears throat> um, that explicit racism was obviously contested by black Americans and in the black press, but you did see within the white press, some, some critiques as well. Um, more moderate white politicians, particularly outside of the South um, who didn't hold those extreme racial views did uh, critique Eastland mostly for the, the tenor in which he offered those, those claims. They, they, these white politicians weren't, necessarily so forthright in defending the reputations of black Americans, as they were saying, this form of, of white supremacy is, is beyond the pale. It's, it's too far beyond uh, the employed political culture. And so that's what their, their concerns were about. Talking with Matthew Delmont about his book, Half America. And, you know, the, the uh, accomplishment of, of black Americans in the wars is, as, as you, I think, alluded to earlier, um, just you know it stands for itself it's two great road projects that were done during the war the the, the alaskan road and the uh the, is it the late lato road um in um in indian china yep. uh, two projects that involved i think a majority of 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 the people that worked on it were majority black um and these these were very difficult um assignments i mean just hundreds of miles of road through conditions, one very cold, one very hot, just remarkable. Um, and you, and your book spells that out. Yeah. I think some of those examples are, are things that I didn't know I was going to be writing about when I started this book. I think that's what's so fun for me about his story, about being a right. historian is that you're, you're trying to put these puzzle pieces together. And I was blown away by the amazing amounts of <clears throat> just this grueling, but completely vital work that black troops did during the war. The Alaska highway that they build is through just the most treacherous, wooded, muddy, frozen terrain you can imagine. And most of these guys are from, these are black men from the South. They're from Mississippi and Alabama who have never seen snow before. Yet in these sub-zero temperatures, they're out there literally breaking the ground and building this this road to make sure that uh, at the time, the reason it was important is because they want to make sure that um, the U.S. could defend itself against a possible land invasion from Japan that would go through Alaska and then come down through Canada into the into the US. Those are sort of stories of just backbreaking labor that they aren't the kind of stories that typically get featured in uh, Hollywood films about World War II, but that too was what the war was about. It was about trying to fight and win this massive global conflict that obviously combat was important, but combat was only honestly a, a small part of a much larger picture about how you transport supplies across the, the world and how you defend those supply lines. And it's if you take that perspective on the war, Black Americans were absolutely vital to helping win the war. 
you know, you had a quote in there from, uh, I think it was Mosey Davy. He was served as a battalion sergeant in the, in the um, this is the one, the, the Lado Road, mm-hmm. said, I thought we'd accomplished something when we finished that road. Well, the, you know, hundreds of miles through jungle when they're in monsoon season and they did it in record time where they had to work very hard because the war, I think they got about, they got it done almost at the end of the war. But I mean, mm-hmm. they had about six, eight months or whatever that they used it. But yeah, they said they came home and, and you know, nothing. You know, there was no recognition at all of, you know, this contribution that, um, you know, just as you said, you know, you can't even believe it when you look at the conditions that they worked under and, and worked like backbreaking hours uh, to, to accomplish it. Exactly. And I think when we think about the war, we should be thinking about groups like the Red Ball Express truck drivers. These were right. truck drivers, largely black truck drivers, who transported supplies across Europe after D-Day. So D-Day obviously just stood for day of the invasion. There was still D-Day plus one, D-Day plus two. And then for weeks and months thereafter, the Allies had this transport hundreds of thousands of tons of supplies, ammunition, gasoline, uh, food, um, boots, everything that these armies needed as they were pushing into Germany. Black troops are the ones who moved that. Almost nothing that moved in the European theater uh, didn't pass through the hands of at least one Black American. Black Americans touched all of these things. And so without the vital roles that Black Americans played in the supply and logistical roles, it the honest truth is that the Allied forces couldn't move, shoot, or eat. Uh, and so I think hopefully the book gives readers a chance to, to think differently about how the, the war was fought and won and gives um, gives us different points of entry to think about um, the really important roles that, that Black Americans played during the war. That's a good point, because I think most of us, unless we're, you know, sort of really get into it like you did, where you you, you review the problem. Well, you said seven years in research on the book. Um Unless you do that, you don't realize, you know, war isn't. And of course, this was certainly World War II is the case, you know, the case there where you're moving troops. They got to eat. They got to you know, be, be uh, housed, all these other things. Otherwise, you know, it doesn't work on the on the end in, in, the, in the combat role. So it's absolutely necessary. You know, one of the things and I mentioned this briefly, Matthew, but um, we're talking about the treatment of, of black Americans when they were preparing for war and. I think it was, uh, this was a woman, um, I think a Tuskegee, that went to town, went to Montgomery, Alabama, to get, you know, 40 miles away, and, you know, couldn't get on the bus to come back. She had to come back to, to the base. I think she was, a, you know, she had a, I can't remember now if she was a lieutenant or what, what her um, title was. But anyway, wouldn't get off the bus, uh, said, no, no, I need to get back. And the driver, you know, calls the police and they drag her off the bus. They beat her up, throw her in jail until they get this thing worked out with the base. And and she, you know, finally gets back the next day, you know. And I thought, this is, you know, people don't think about this. That, you know, somebody's trying to serve their country and this is the treatment they get. You know, it's just it's, it's incredible. Yeah, they're deeply, deeply upsetting stories. Uh, the woman you're referencing, her name is Norma Green. She's a nurse at Tuskegee. And... That was, honestly, it was par for the course, both at Tuskegee and at other army bases. Um, that incident with Norma Green, when she got back to the base after being beaten up, a number of the Tuskegee pilots and other ground personnel uh, nearly rioted. They, they wanted yeah. to, um, to express their outrage. And I mean, one can only imagine how differently things would have turned out if they would have, would have gone through with that. The stories right. that kept coming back the stories that kept coming back to the black press and the NAACP from black troops who were stationed, particularly at these Southern bases, is that they, they feared for their lives on, on these bases. And 
in many cases, rightly so, there were numerous acts of violence against black troops while they're on these army bases. They thought they would be safer if they were deployed. They thought it was going to be safer to actually be at war in Europe or the Pacific than to be stationed in Alabama, Mississippi, or Georgia. And, and again, those are not typically the kind of stories we talk about in World War II, um, but that's the, the, honest, um, the honest stories you find in the evidence. And I think it's important if we're going to tell an, sort of a true honest story of what the war looked like that that was the experience of a lot of black americans that they were treated horrendously on these army camps and in the service of their country and still they fought valiantly they did grueling backbreaking work to help win the war effort and then came home and tried to make america, america a better place by fighting for civil rights talking talking with uh, matthew delmont uh, about his book half american and you know you got some heroes in here too you mentioned langston hughes who's, uh, uh, you know, was over there in Europe uh, prior to World War II. Um, the, uh, the other one, Thurgood Marshall, my goodness. I mean, I know he's Supreme Court Justice. And everyone knows that name, but wow. Uh, you know, the workload that man took on, right, you know, because he, he was on, at a lot of those bases trying to figure out what was going on or, or knowing what was going on and trying to do something about it. But uh, that's just incredible, the, 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 the flow of, of the work that he covered in that period. Absolutely. Uh, Thurgood, Marshall, Thurgood Marshall was the lead lawyer for the NAACP during uh, World War II. And his, his main role during the war was he traveled all across the country and investigated these cases and reports of violence against black troops. Um, he was throughout the South. He was up in the Midwest. He was out in California. And that was important because it was too easy for the military to try to sweep these things under the rug. Um, so Marshall did a really important job of bringing these things to light and then refusing to let them drop. He was dogged in his fight on behalf of uh, Black troops and, and Black veterans and really made sure he did everything he could to try to hold military officials and uh, politicians to account. This, this wasn't in the book, uh, Matthew, but uh, how did it go in uh, Korea uh, with, with Black Americans in, in combat or, or being in service? Did do we... It, was it improvement? I mean, because that came shortly after uh, the army was integrated in what '48. Uh, I'm just wondering. Uh, you know, just kind of occurred to me. I wonder how that went. Yeah, the uh, so my book doesn't follow the story through to Korea, but the, the big difference, as you note, is that the military becomes desegregated in 1948, and so by Korea, um, not a hundred percent of the units are desegregated, but the the vast majority are. Black troops still certainly encountered racism. Um, I don't want to say that racism somehow disappeared overnight, but the the kind of treatment they received based on the accounts or history accounts and the primary sources from the era uh, suggests that things were moving in a more positive direction. And I think that is one of the maybe positive stories we can take away from, from this is that at the outset of World War II, uh, it made no sense for the military to be segregated. There was no strategic reason to do that. In fact, it was just the opposite. It was logistically complicated and onerous and took up more resources to do everything in duplicate. When the war ends in 45, it seems almost impossible that the military is ever going to desegregate. Um, but only three years later, by 1948, they finally do because of the pressure President Truman's under. He issues that executive order to desegregate the military. That really opens the door to other parts of American society becoming integrated. Uh, we understand some decades on how long of a struggle that's been to move towards desegregation, towards racial equality. But the military has played an important role on the leading edge of that um, because of the uh, brave service of World War II veterans, Black World War II veterans, but also then because of the, the protests that finally led to the desegregation of the military in 48. And, you know, not, not to uh, turn everything back politically, but 
you know, I mentioned uh, Eastland's comments, and and we often hear, and I think your book refers to it. Roosevelt, FDR, uh, was was kind of walking the line during the war, where he probably wanted to do things, but the strong South, the Democratic South at that time, he wanted to placate them. And you can realize it must be hard to placate somebody who has views like Eastland demonstrated in '45. Um, but yet, you know. Had we had a two-term limit, then I thought, well, that might have changed things. But then Roosevelt wouldn't even been in office in uh, in during the outbreak of the war. I wonder. I don't know who would have been. So who knows? You can't rewrite history anyway. But we we won't try. But we will tell you about your book, Half American, a fascinating read. Uh, information that people like myself um, need to know because you you if blissfully unaware of it. Um, that's a contribution you need to know that uh, Black America has made on behalf of this country. Matthew, we thank you so much um, and, and wish you the best. And what's your next project? You got one yet or is that still in the works? I'm still cooking up the next book. I'm not, not sure yet, um, <laughs> but it was a great pleasure to talk with you, Steve. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye now. Bye-bye.